0: Twelve oh eight, Jeff Wetner, WTMJ. So, Eric, th- this is this is one of the classic examples of how how a plan can fall apart. Okay, all right. Now, here, here's the story. Channel twelve had this story. Maybe other people did too. I saw it on channel twelve. A Waukesha man called police to tell them the two women he hired for sex had stolen his phone and cash. So here here's. Here here is the deal. The guy's name is Scott Peshman. All right. Now apparently Scott Peshman decides that he wants to hire not one but two women to come over for sex. He's an adventurous guy. According, <laughs> you know Okay, you give him credit, all right. <laughs> okay, according okay. to a criminal complaint, Peshman met Victoria Pena on the website back page, whatever that might be. Looking for an intimate evening, the complaint says that she, this would be this woman, Mm -hmm. Victoria Pena, Mm -hmm. and a woman named Maria LeBron, and a third woman huh, went to Peschman's Merton home for sex on Sunday night. So it's three people. All right. Got to love that. All right. Once they got there, they agreed on a $400 price. OK, four hundred bucks. The complaint says when the women left, they took the four hundred bucks. They also took the guy's work phone with them. Ah, so okay. they robbed him. So now here you're sitting there. You, you've arranged for this intimate evening. You've agreed on on the price and the people that you've had this intimate evening with have now robbed you. So what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> the, the guy calls the to his credit. He calls the cops and says, hey, these hookers have just robbed me. And uh, he now finds himself, uh, again, charged in connection with the overall thing. You might be better off just saying you lost your phone. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Isn't that what you have insurance for? You know, it, it's, th- this brought to mind... I um. I, what? I, well, what, what? Where are we sermon? going with this? No, no, no. This, this is. I'm, I'm in Las Vegas. I, this is. I am in Las Vegas Ooh, a couple years ago, and this, per, this guy I'm with has friends who are on the Las Vegas Vice Squad. See, this is a cautionary tale. It is an education. It is an educational moment here. um The guy who works Vice. Can you imagine being a cop who works the Vice Squad <laughs> in Las yes. Vegas? He was saying that about a third of their calls. Are these things that they call trick rolls? Some businessman from the Midwest comes out, hires a hooker. Sure. All right, and then what happens is after they've done their business or whatever, the hooker says, "Okay, I want all your money." And the guy says, "What? Well, I'm not going to give you all your money." And the, the the this is the thing: the the hooker will say. If you don't, I'm going to call the police, yeah. and I'm going to tell them that you assaulted me, whatever. And the guy says, well, they won't believe you. You're a hooker. And the, the, the way it works is doesn't matter, because whether they believe me or not, they're going to file a police report. And then Mr. Eric Bilstad, the name is you know, on your the name report. is going to be on some police report yeah. that's going to be out there. Whether, okay, because my story is you sexually assaulted me. Your story is you hired a hooker out here in Las Vegas. <laughs> Explain that to your wife. You know, um, and, and it, honestly, this police officer was telling me it's about this vice squad, call, about a third of their call. So next time now, of course, you and I, Eric, wouldn't get yeah, in this, that trouble for my producer right. grew. Next time you go to Vegas, just keep that in mind. That is a cautionary tale. Wow. But you don't have to go to Vegas for that to happen here. Apparently in the town of Merton, you've got this going on. <laughs> he called the cops I mean seriously he called the, that's one where I, I'm I'm with you Eric I think he just kind of report the file I, I lost the phone hey, sorry, somewhere I left sorry, boss it, I left it at big boy you know it was just kind of go on and big thing it big number one <laughs> right, right there, yeah that? that's right yeah it's that's the life lesson um, well actually the the, the the legal advice from a recovering lawyer would be You know, don't go and ask, pay for an intimate evening with a bunch of people, women you don't know. That's always, nothing good is going to come of that. That's just the bottom line. All right, that's the educational moment of the show. We start today's show like we start off every show, three big things. All right, residency rules. Most cities in the state of Wisconsin never had residency requirements. There were only a handful of states of cities that that did. Um, most municipalities said, "Look, we're you know employees can live wherever they want to live. Some live within the municipality, some live outside the municipality. In some cases, um, some of the employees in some of the communities, for example, can't really even afford to live." in certain of the communities where they work because of the cost of housing etc cetera, etc cetera. milwaukee was never like that the city of milwaukee always had chains on its employees requiring them as a condition of employment to live within the city that changed after a law that was passed by the legislature in 2013 and ultimately affirmed by the state Supreme Court in 2016, which now allows employees to live where they want. Now, there's a provision that... I don't think it's being enforced aggressively right now, but it it says that, you know, you have to live within 15 miles of the city. That's something that I think would be legal. But right now, as a general rule, employees do not have to live within the bounds of the city. When this was being debated, there were people on one side like Tom Barrett and some of the aldermen saying this is just going to devastate the city if you allow people to choose where they want to live right that was the argument then there were people like me who were saying look i, I think employees should be able to live where they want and i understand why employees would, would have concern you've got in generally lousy school system Um so yeah i can understand why somebody who is a firefighter or a police officer or someone else i can understand why they would want to live outside the city And to me, the whole thing about residency rules has been you you shouldn't have to force people to live in a particular area. If if your employees want to bail, the fundamental question should be, why is it that that's the case? And let's address the quality of life issues that make the fire or the fire of the police people or, or whatever, whoever decides to leave. Well, anyhow, there's a number that's out. This is a study the Legislative Reference Bureau came out with something not that long ago, and they've analyzed what's happened since 2013. And what they say is out of a total of 6,500 approximately city employees, since that time, 1,367 city employees excluding elected officials and temporary election workers have moved to live outside the city. Overall, 21% of employees are non-residents. If you look at the fire and police officers, you see a higher percentage. It's it's in the low 30s. This is employees who've decided to live outside the city you've got the mayor and several aldermen saying oh this is terrible it's disastrous for the city it's having a huge financial impact that you have these workers who have chosen to leave 37 percent overall so overall 21 percent of city employees now live outside the city 37% of Milwaukee firefighters are non-residents. 33% of Milwaukee police officers are non-residents. And if the trend continues, there will be more and more as people decide to leave. Now, that, those numbers aren't all people who have lived in the city and left. It also includes new hires who were hired and never lived in the city at all. So it's just looking at overall non-residents. All right, let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. Was this a bad law? Should the city be able to require... People to live as a condition of working, should you be able to be required to live, have to live within the boundaries of the city? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, I think, candidly, if you have people leaving... That that's the issue that you need to address, not the whole concept of residency rules. And I do not believe that allowing city employees to live outside the city is decimating the city of Milwaukee. But that's my take. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Do we need to rescind, is this a bad law that lets employees live where they choose? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, three years, four years after the residency rule law was changed, it now appears that about one in five city of Milwaukee employees have decided to not live in the city. Higher percentage, if you look at firefighters or police officers, candidly, I I don't have a problem with it. I think people should be able to live where they choose to live. And if Tom Barrett and the aldermen are concerned about people moving out of the city of Milwaukee, maybe they need to figure out why it is that these public employees are choosing to live somewhere else. Let's start with Tom on the south side. Tom, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey. Hi, Tom.
1: Jeff, uh, not only um, are you uh, being able to live outside the city, but Barrett penalizes you if you're a regular city employee. You lose 2% pay.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. They And, and even with that incentive, they still have about one in five city employees who are moving out.
1: Well, yeah. And uh, I think what they should look at, the, more, uh, uh, the bigger effect that we had with the city is Act 10. We can't even get any electricians to come to our department anymore. We're so short-staffed, it's pathetic because of the raises and everything they looked at. They took everything away since Act 10. So the only benefit the city employees have is leaving the city to go to a better school system or, you know, just a better area and taxes are cheaper outside the city.
0: Well, that, I mean, no, thanks. See, and that, that's, I, that's, that, there's all sorts of reasons why people decide to live in, in a particular area. I mean, I think, you know, school system, crime, taxes, those are all the, the factors. But I mean, I can certainly understand if you have, let's say somebody that works for the Department of Public Works, all right, let's take a, a young, a young guy or a young gal works for the Department of Public Works, get married, you start to have you know, your family and you're starting to say, okay, you know, where where do I want to raise my child? I want to find the best school system I can. Gee, would I rather send the child to MPS or would I rather, if I can figure out a way to afford to live in one of the neighboring suburbs where the school system is better? Well, I, I don't think you can fault people for wanting to do that. So if the mayor and the alderman are upset with the fact that you have city employees who are choosing to leave. Again, it seems to me the fundamental question is let's figure out why they're leaving and what we can do to make it attractive for them to stay. Now, you're exactly right. There's an incentive they give. There's like a 2% pay incentive they give for people who live in the city. You know, other cities have tried things like, hey, for fire and police officers, if we've got vacant houses, we'll let them rent it for almost nothing or things like that. I don't have a problem With any of that at all. But I think one of the issues you have with these residency requirements, especially nowadays, is I think you end up chasing off losing a lot of qualified employees and getting people who would otherwise be qualified who who won't apply if they knew, you know, hey, I'd I'd love to be a City of Milwaukee police officer, but you know what? I've grown up in Waukesha. I'm, I'm married now. You know, we've got our roots out here in Waukesha. I don't want to have to relocate into the city of Milwaukee. I want to be part of the Waukesha school system. Or, and I just use that as an example. This to me, in many respects, is kind of similar to what happened when you had the alderman a few weeks ago who got just upset that you had some of the subcontractors that showed up, you know, on the job sites carrying firearms. Oh, this is terrible. Look at what this looks like. Well, all right, maybe you want to deal with the underlying thing of why did the contractors think that they needed to bring guns in the first place? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. David in Milwaukee David, good afternoon.
2: Yes, good afternoon to you What do you think? Well, I think in contrast to the previous caller, I think that uh, people who are going to seek a position of a fireman or a policeman in the city of Milwaukee uh, they have the choice of staying here or joining the city they also have the choice of going to another community or staying in a community that's on the uh, outer uh, suburbs that uh, uh mm-hmm. around their city, but to have your cake and eat it too is, I think, what the city is saying. They would rather have a stronger population, a person who is a, a fireman or a policeman to reside in the community that they uh, protect and they get to be a part of the fabric of the city. So, I think the city is quite correct in trying to defend that posture. That person who Wants to have their cake and eat it too. Get the top dollars. If you look at what a city of Milwaukee firemen or policemen get, it far exceeds most suburbs. Mm-hmm. Their pension retirement uh, payout is way above the general city employee. Uh, so I think that's where the conflict is. We need to strengthen the citizenry base, and I think those are jobs that should be for city employees, a uh, uh, city citizens uh, as employees, and and um, that should go across all the ethnic. Uh, levels, uh, if we have a criticism, I think it's the politicians who are looking the other way to have their uh, preferences, given the fact that most firemen and policemen uh, have a propensity to vote in a, uh, how can I say, a conservative mode, uh, to have their way to live out of the city. The, those people who choose to leave, leave, you can just look at the south side. Well, why,
0: the let me ask this: this. Why... why? Is this unique to the city of Milwaukee? Like I say, before I this law it's, passed, it's almost, obvious, no, almost obvious, no community had it.
2: It's an obvious thing. We have the greatest, we're a city of, let's say, approximately 550 to 600,000 people in residence. We have probably a million people in uh, population as far as a workforce. And let's face it, the city of Milwaukee has the largest concentration of ethnic diversity of any suburb. And obviously that includes blacks and Mexicans, Asians, and they all play, hopefully, a, a positive role in the city's foundation. But we also have a disproportionate number of policemen who are willing to take the dollars and leave the city. So,
0: so you, do you think it's racism? Is that what you're implying? That, that the, reason, that the reason firefighters go, yep, choose absolutely. to go to...
2: Absolutely. And anybody who says mm. otherwise is lying through their teeth.
0: So a firefighter who decides, I want to live in Glendale instead of the city of Milwaukee, you think it's racism. Really?
2: There's a factor in it. It's not the only factor, but dollars play a big role. I want to have my cake and eat it, too. As your previous caller said, uh, there are schools that are better than some in Milwaukee, but we have private schools in the city of Milwaukee, too. They equally are more expensive to go to. You see Mm -hmm. what a school... I tried to send my son to Marquette. At the time, I tried to send him at Marquette High School. I mean, we're talking uh, double, uh, let's see, five-figure... Uh, tuition.
0: Well, well, yeah, but see, that's my. I mean, David, that's my point. I mean, that, that's. I mean, I'm trying to pick. You, you've got the the young family, for example, and they're sitting there saying, "Okay, well, the choice is, I'm not going to send my child to one of these MPS schools. I'm not going to do that. So the question becomes, I either move out to. You know, one of the suburbs where I think I can get a higher quality education and taxes are lower, or I, I spend however thousands, many a thousand dollars, thousands of dollars I need to to send my child to the private school, or I can send them to free for free if I can figure out a way to again move into the Wauwatosa school district, or you know, move into the Whitefish Bay school district, or Shorewood or whatever. We're going to continue this conversation uh, in just a moment. Are, are residency rules inherently bad? It's twelve twenty nine. This is. Jeff Wagner, twelve thirty six. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Kevin It says, "What's the use in calling it community policing if the police officers don't stay in the community they police?" All right, wait, wait a second. Now let's let, let's have a dose of reality. Back when there were residency rules, there were a couple, and I'm generalizing now. But there were most of the fire and police officers, let's just talk about police officers, most, not all, lived in a couple areas of the city. Not the districts, not the police districts where they worked. I mean, northwest part of the city, as far as you can get away from downtown Milwaukee, that's where the enclaves, you know, were. That's where the neighborhoods that had the cops, because they didn't want to be necessarily close to the urban area. They wanted to be as far away as possible. Matter of fact, geographically now, I think you can you have people that are living outside the city, but are probably actually living closer to where it is that they work now that they live outside the city than when you had these residency rules that were there. That's just kind of the the reality that's out there. And, And again, as long as you're part of the region, I, I think that's the key. I think it is reasonable for a city to say, hey, you know, there might be times that you have to come here on short notice, so, you know, we expect you to live within X miles so you can get here. I think that's reasonable. But this idea that, well, you've you've got to live within the city proper because you don't understand the community, well, okay, you, the, the fact is that a police officer or a firefighter who lives in South Milwaukee, I, I think has just as much understanding of the community where they work as somebody who maybe lives on the far northwest side. 414-799-1620 is the number. Janie in Watertown. Janie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
3: Hi. um, Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. This is a subject that has bothered me for many, many years. I'm 65 years old. I grew up in Chicago. My father was a Chicago firefighter. They had the residency rule. And I can remember as a small kid, my father's saying, Why should I have to live here? We did, but he would say that, saying, I don't discriminate because of the race of the person in the building. I fight the fire like <laughs> I'm supposed to. It makes no difference. They're doing their job, and he, he was never late to work, so what difference does it make? That That's saying that that cake and eat it too guy, if he lives, in, or if, if he has a job in Milwaukee, no matter what it is, he has to stay in Milwaukee. He can't live anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Why should certain people be basically discriminated and told they have to live in the city that they work when they're not doing anything wrong or not doing their job?
0: Well, I, I think the argument would. Be, I think the argument would be that you should spend if you're an employee of the city of any city, you should be spending your money in that city. But that that's you know i don't know maybe that made sense in 1935 but that doesn't make sense in in 2018 anyways because the reality is um, okay, let's, let's say you live on the far northwest side of the city right. of Milwaukee. You know, you're, you're, you're gonna be going to Menominee Falls to shop. You're gonna be going to Waukesha to shop. I mean, you're gonna be spending your money all over the, the region. People are mobile nowadays. You know, you can't put up a wall and force public employees to live inside that wall.
3: Correct. And you shouldn't force people, more or less, to put their money into that city. That's their business. It's nobody else's.
0: Well, all, right. Also, um, I mean, he, look, here's the reality. There are some very, very nice areas of the city of Milwaukee. I mean, you have this huge development. That's, they put a lot of resources into downtown, into the Third Ward. Um, a lot of those areas, though, are priced out out of the reach of a a lot of your average city, you know, workers. So, I mean, look, I'm not going to fault somebody who says, hey, look, I just want a better life. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good employee. I have something to offer. But you know what? I I also, I've got a wife who's from South Milwaukee. I've got a wife who's from Glendale. She grew up there. We want to live in Glendale. We can get a bigger house. We can get better yards. We can get better schools. Why should we say, okay, the cost of that is you can no longer work for the city. I just I think that's just so short-sighted.
3: And to me, you shouldn't be told what you have to do because of what you
0: do. Right. No, th- Thanks, Nicole. Now, I think, you know, and again, the other point I've made, that's at the start of this conversation, one of the, the reasons why when they, they say like 21% of the, the workers live outside the city, that doesn't mean, uh, again, that all of those people left the city, because that also includes new hires since 2013 who never lived in the city. Now, I, I get one of the arguments that you hear is, well, the, the city's property values are going to crater because you've got you know these you know people who are working at middle class jobs who are like bailing on their their properties and all but you know my my point is you you as a general rule your your house is typically your biggest asset you are not going to just abandon your house just because you you can now no longer you are trapped in having to work in the city. You are going to have to find somebody who's going to buy you know that house, or you are going to rent the house out. But I mean, in general, you are probably going to be selling the things. Look again. Here is the bottom line, and regardless of how you feel about residency rules, instead of complaining about the legislature changing the law, the underlying fact is. If Milwaukee was a community that was attractive to these fire police officers, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. There's obviously something going on which is causing them to either not want to move here or move outside the city. Why don't you try to concentrate on that underlying factor, fix that and then you won't have a problem. And, and like I say, there's parts of the city of Milwaukee which are incredibly desirable. There, there's no question about it. A lot of stuff going on downtown. I understand why young professionals would love to live downtown. I understand why um, empty nesters you know, would love to live in the downtown area. There's all this stuff going on. You've got access to events. You've got access to restaurants. So there's all sorts of things that are going on, but at the same time, You know, I also understand why a a middle class family who's looking for school systems and is concerned about crime, you know, might be attracted to some of the suburbs. And I think it is very short sighted for the city to tell them that you know you're not welcome here you're not welcome to work here we don't want your services if you decide to leave all right when we come up back big story number two we're not going to talk about the city of Milwaukee we're going to talk about something that is going on in Glendale stick around 1243 Jeff Wagner WTMJ 1247 Jeff Wagner WTMJ Let's see. Um, the hottest team in the NBA is in town to take on one of the league's most confusing teams. Greg Matzik thinks a matchup with the Rockets is just what the Bucks need. He'll explain why tonight on Sports Central at 6.07. Huh. Okay. Tune in. Tune in to hear that. Um, the, all week. And matter of fact, I've heard from a couple of you who think I was unduly harsh on the president for his Sort of spontaneous decision to impose a 25% tariff on steel and a 10% tariff on aluminum. What was one of the phrases I used? Oh, yes, dumb as a box of rocks. I stand by that. Um, and then to, to kind of double down on it and to say the trade wars are good and they're easy to win. Um, for, for a lot of us, who have, you know, grown up as, you know, free traders, which is, is, at least up until recently, has been the conservative position, um, that, you know, hearing, oh, trade wars are good makes your head want to explode. Now, I understand, for example, that if you have an issue with a particular country, maybe you, you want to do some targeted things to try to get a trade balance. But again, just putting a 25%, for example, tariff, Bringing in steel into this country, um, you're, you're not hurting China. You, you, it's Canada and it's Europe, which is where we're getting our steel from. And anybody who didn't think that there was going to be a response to that was smoking wacky tobacco. And now this, this is the story that's just breaking. Um, these tariffs, if we really do get into a trade war, are going to be very, very bad for Wisconsin. Harley-Davidson, for example, exports motorcycles. Harley-Davidson, which is struggling to begin with, is trying to, you know, again, get footholds and expand their footprint in European markets. Well, what happens if the European Union suddenly sticks a huge tariff on harley Davidson's? That's going to be bad for the country. Wisconsin, in particular, is, is an, when it comes to agriculture, we are a huge exporter one of the things that we export is cranberries did you know that well you you went to school at Stevens Point right so you I mean that's that's the heart of a cranberry country that that whole area yeah the, the bog I mean okay well the the us the um us Europe is the largest export market for us cranberries and Wisconsin is the world's top cranberry producer. Okay, cranberries are a big deal for the state of Wisconsin. And um Europe is the biggest market for the the cranberry exports. So that mean that means it makes a big deal. Okay, so here's here's the deal. Right now, Um, There is an over—just like there's too much Chinese steel that's out there, there's an oversupply of cranberries, and that's kind of hurt the cranberry producers. But, But here's the announcement today. The European Union, just today, came out with a list of different tariffs, different taxes that it was going to apply on different products if President Trump really did insist on going in this trade war. And, um, again, the U.S. ships more than 95 million pounds of cranberries a year to Europe. And what Europe is saying today, the European Union is saying, okay, if this goes ahead, cranberries are on the list of products that are going to be slapped with tariffs. They're looking at things. And so, I mean, you know, th- this is a bad thing for, I think, the country and for the state of Wisconsin in particular. They're looking at other products like bourbon from Kentucky and peanut butter and orange juice and Levi's and Harley Davidson motorcycles and and cranberries. So I I think you need to be really, really careful. I understand all this rhetoric about, hey, we're getting taken advantage of in this deal or that deal. Well, that's a basis maybe for renegotiating trade deals, but just willy nilly saying, we're gonna pick certain industries and we're gonna impose tariffs and you're not not thinking that it's going to have consequences. Well, I'm telling you, this sends shock waves. I, I think throughout certain industries. And the last thing we need in Wisconsin is our agricultural exports. Some of these industries that are already with cranberries struggling with an, an oversupply, a surplus. Last thing you need is them being the target of a trade war. And in response to a tax on aluminum or a tariff on steel, now. They're going to put us tariff on Wisconsin Cranberries. It's why Senator Ron Johnson is right. It's why Congressman Paul Ryan is right. It's why Governor Scott Walker is right in saying, hey, hey look, you know, we got to go really, really carefully here. Speaking of Governor Scott Walker... He's going to be our headliner at Insight 2018, which is coming up March 28th at the Country Springs Hotel. We've got a great guest lineup. Uh, Ticket sales have been robust. You can check them out at WTMJ.com. This is Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. But I tell you what. I'm going to give away a pair of tickets to Insight 2018, March 28th, at the Country Springs Hotel. Let's give it to caller number 12, 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Caller 12 wins a pair of tickets to Insight 2018, presented by our friends at Annex Wealth Management. Hope to see you there. 12.55, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Trade wars are dangerous things, and um, I think this is one where Republicans, most Democrats, most economists recognize that uh, the president's desire to try to, I don't know, protect uh, the American steel industry, which is 114,000 jobs, is going to quite candidly put a lot more jobs at risk that's what happened the last time we tried tariffs back in 2002 it was an absolute and total failure and i don't think things have changed and hopefully the president's going to come to his senses i say hopefully all right big story number two Bayshore Town Center out in Glendale. Now, I let me just kind of back into this. When I was a little kid, we moved here, and I grew up in Glendale, lived a couple blocks away from Nicolay High School. I remember Bayshore Shopping Center when it was just kind of an L-stra- L-shaped mall. You had Boston Store, you had Sears, you had a grocery store. Then it became an – it was an outdoor mall. Then it became an enclosed mall when we started closing malls. Then about 10 years ago, they came up with the concept of – the, the town center where you have the mall that's still there, but also you have um, you have mixed-use development. You have uh, a number of stores, lots of high-end stores. You have um, apartments where people were living at. And I have to tell you, I, I was a little bit skeptical, but for the first several years, I don't think there's any question that Bayshore Town Center was a, a huge success. It, it just was. Um, things have started to change now. The Sears store is gone from there. Sports authority that had a huge presence, they've gone out of business. Uh, there's, I, I think, 15 or so vacancies. Some of the high-end stores that they had, they have now been shuttered. And the, the entertainment complex that they have there, the, the IPIC, which was six movie theaters, a bowling alley, and, and I'm sorry to say this, I tried it many times over the last 10 years. A really lousy restaurant. They never got the restaurant right. It and there, there was never anybody in the restaurant. They they tried various things. The most recent thing was a barbecue place. It just wasn't any good. At least in my opinion. Maybe you loved it, but not too many people could have loved it because you know the company that owns I Pick announced uh, two days ago, actually yesterday. Boom! They're they're closing it down. Today is the last day. Um, no more movies. Uh, no more bowling. No more restaurant. And it's leaving the operators of Bayshore kind of scrambling now, trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? This is just the latest nail in the coffin. All right. Now, part of this is, of course, the fact that more and more people are just shopping online. I think it goes beyond that, though. If you live in this area, what is the future of Bayshore Town Center? It has been a success, I think, up until recently it is struggling, and IPIC's departure is the latest example of it. What is the future of Bayshore Town Center? Will it thrive and survive, or is this in a spiral now like we've seen with other shopping centers like Southgate, like Northridge? We discuss next. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. What do you think? We're going to discuss after the news. It's 1259. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner. One hundred and nine, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I, I remember when the Bayshore Town Center first opened up, and and I was, I was skeptical. I, I was glad to say though, it, it for a number of years it appeared to be a huge success. Now what you see is lots of stores leaving. The latest news yesterday was their IPIC Entertainment Center, six, um, six theater, movie theater, bowling alleys, and restaurant. They've announced suddenly that they're they're going out of business. They're closing effective today. Um, in, in all honesty, and you're free to disagree with me, but I, I ate at the restaurant many times. It was never any good. Uh, the bowling alley always seemed to be underutilized. Uh, the theaters, I thought they were cool in the beginning, but it, it's they didn't put very much money in, in my opinion, you know, keeping them up. And, and so I'm not necessarily surprised to see that this fail. It was a great concept, Um but you know, what does this say for the future of that that enterprise? Let's talk to Mike on the Northwest Side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
1: Yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Uh, my, my thoughts are, uh, you know, uh, I know that retail is changing a lot. Kohl's uh, is very innovative in that they're going uh, up with these in Amazon. I think that brick-and-mortar is still going to be a viable part of this. I think that Bayshore Mall will survive somehow or other. I, I think that uh, basically... Uh, I, I guess my thoughts are that you got to figure out the millennial uh, thought mm-hmm. process, and I don't have that. I'm yeah. <laughs> kind of uh, in, in a dilemma here. I'm a little bit older. I'm 63, and I'm thinking that uh, if you can figure out the millennial thought process, you'll figure out this. Uh, I think Cole's on the hook of it, uh, but I think other retails, retailers yeah. will probably hook onto this, and I think that... Uh,
0: well, and I guess survive. yeah, Mike, it's, it's interesting, and that, that's one of the things that I, I'm trying to wrestle with is the idea that, for example, this I pick going out of business is that a reflection of Bayshore, or is it reflection of the fact that that I pick, at least as executed in Bayshore, wasn't very good. And, and again, I'm I, I apologize for offending anybody, just. I tried to eat there it this is's been open for ten years tried to eat there I, I never had a decent even a decent meal there it was awful um you know the bowling alley it always I mean I think I went there for a kids party once or twice but it was always underutilized and you had a half dozen movie theaters but those movie theaters um the last couple of times I was there the carpeting was worn it just it it just kind of looked old to me, so I, I don't, the bar was never, they had a bar that, you know, never had too many people in it, you've got a bar Louis right across the way that was always packed, this place just wasn't, so I, I just, it, it's always bad when you see something like this happen, but I, I do find myself wondering, is is this a problem with the facility, or is it just a problem with a, a bad operator, and I understand they've got IPICS in other places, maybe it just didn't end up working here, I, I will say, that I I think it is challenging when you're talking about retail nowadays. And what you need to do is you need to have a mix, and it needs to be somewhat upscale. And, you know, Bayshore Town Center had that in in the beginning. You know, you had stores that you couldn't find anywhere else. They've still got a Brooks Brothers there. They've got a, uh, you know, there's an Apple store there. But a a lot of the other stores that I I think would have brought people in are disappearing. And so now that this is this is the challenge, you know, originally they were talking about you know, clearing space for condo development. Don't know where that is in the plan. You know, you've got you know, the uh, you've got apartments that are still there. It's got potential. But at the same time, th- these are a series of blows. And it shows how fragile a lot of of, of these shopping centers are. Here's a text. I hate Bayshore's concept of going outside to get from store to store, especially in winter months. It will be the next Northridge um, um, soon, given the number of stores that end up you know, closing. Uh, Justin says, I think it's a shame that IPIC couldn't make it there, and it's closing. It's only Wisconsin location versus the originally hoped for expansion. Entertainment establishments like this seem to be the savior of malls and retail power centers that are ever losing their long-term anchor tenants. Um, if IPIC isn't right for Bay Shore then what is? Uh, tenuous times ahead for established shopping centers. There is a point there um, because, again, you need – you need the entertainment stuff to bring people in, and uh, just it is it is not necessarily good news. I'm not, though, prepared, like I say, to say that it's necessarily a problem with Bayshore Town Center. might have been a problem just with this IPIC. When we come back, the Justice Department, the U.S. Justice Department, goes after sanctuary cities. And after that, what's wrong with voting in schools? Stick around. It's 114. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 117, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very pleased to have you with us. The Young Bucks continue to push towards the postseason as James Harden and the Houston Rockets come to town. Ted Davis and Dennis Krause get you set for the tip, starting with buck shots at 640 this evening. All right. Last year, the state of California decided that it was going to, figuratively speaking, declare war on the U.S. government. Um, by enacting a series of sanctuary laws which restrict when and how local law enforcement can cooperate with federal immigration enforcement officers. Um, So the the idea, immigration is, of course, a, a federal concern. There are various laws that are there. But the truth of the matter is there's not enough federal immigration agents to do everything that needs to be done. So what happens is the, you know, the federal government depends on the cooperation of local, you know, local agencies and state agencies to help them, again, enforce the laws Um, in California. Like I can say, they have now passed a series of laws designed to protect people who are in this country illegally and to make it more difficult for federal immigration agents to do their work. Um, for example, they have the California, what they call euphemistically, the California Values Act that strictly limits state and local agencies from sharing information with federal officers about criminals or suspects unless they have been convicted of of serious crimes so the fact and the operative term is convicted so you arrest somebody um, who's in this country illegally you charge him with murder you don't cooperate and less than until the guy is convicted state lawmakers also passed what they call the immigrant worker protection act which prohibits local businesses from allowing immigration agents to gain access to employee records without a court order so you can't just go in and say hey look we're 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 Will you cooperate with us voluntarily? The California law says employers don't have a choice now as to whether they want to cooperate um, voluntarily. And it goes on and on and on. Well, yesterday, the Attorney General of the United States, Jeff Sessions, on behalf of the Trump administration, the federal government, filed a lawsuit against California um, seeking to overturn these various laws because the argument is they're unconstitutional. This is a state which is trying to interfere with the federal government's ability to enforce its laws. Now, I I don't know, know how this is going to work out as it winds its way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it will wind its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But here you have a situation where you have a state which is, figuratively speaking, and perhaps literally taking its right hand and extending one finger towards the US government with regard to the government's efforts to try to enforce federal immigration policy. 414 is the acunate mortgage talk and text line. I do not believe individual states should be able to thwart immigration policy. And if they choose to do things like this, I think there should be two consequences. Number one, lawsuits like this that declare the laws invalid. Number two, I think the federal government should have the ability to start pulling large amounts of money. If you don't want to cooperate, you don't want to follow federal laws, and you want to try to thwart federal laws, fine, do that but then don't expect to be the beneficiary of federal outlays 4147991620 i think it is time to start playing hardball with some of these rogue jurisdictions and i understand that california is a big jurisdiction but california is going rogue when it comes to protection of illegal aliens this isn't about immigration This is about enforcing the laws with regard to illegal immigration. 414-799-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I I say go after them, and I say go after them with everything you've got. And if you really want to hurt them, all right, the idea would be let's start pulling the plug on federal money. Here's our first texter. I'm so sick of this issue. They threaten to cut highway funds to Wisconsin if we lower the drinking age, but California can deny the federal government. Cut California and any other state funds. 414-799-1620, that's the acunate mortgage talk and text line. I just don't think a state should be able to say we are going to ignore federal law and we are going to actually even prohibit our our residents, a business for example this one law like i say it prohibits a business from voluntarily cooperating with immigration what's that all about let's start with joe in new berlin joe you're on wtmj
4: okay i'll try to be brief question for you if you go out and break federal law this afternoon do you think you're going to find uh, correspondence in your mailbox telling you <laughs> that you're going to be sued by the federal government
0: uh, no, my my guess is depending on what law I've broken, I will be I will be visited by some appropriate uh, federal officer who is going to put me in handcuffs and take me down to the federal building.
4: Precisely my point. The U.S. Marshal Service, who has plenty of staff, should show up at these various places: governors of California, mayors of cities, cooperating police chiefs. Although I imagine the police chiefs will be, they will see the light much faster <laughs> if the mayor and the governor are promptly whisked off to a federal facility away from their jurisdiction or away from their area of uh, power and comfort zone. Uh, They can haul them out in the middle of Montana at a federal (laughs) facility until they get this straightened out. And I bet the rest of them would we'll get some religion really quick.
0: Well, thanks. I mean, I think in many cases, the law enforcement chafes under this, too, because law enforcement recognizes that this is – it's not just anti-law enforcement. What this is is it's anti-public safety. And, again, I want to be clear here. We're not talking about legal immigration. We are talking about enforcing this country's immigration laws – and why? I mean, look, I understand the politics of it. You know, California is a state where if you took if you took a map of the U.S. and let's say it was made up of marbles, every loose marble would roll to California. Some might stop in Madison, but most of them would roll to California. So you have this idea that here we want to appease our various constituencies. And this is, I guess, that's perceived as a winning political issue. That's fine. But you cannot pick and choose which laws you want to follow. And like I say, California they decide that they want to you know, take this position, all right, well, maybe that's the time to not only sue them, but also start cutting off federal funds for various things. Let's talk to Chris on the east side. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Chris.
2: Uh, I think that they should cut funding for any state that violates any federal law. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's states that uh, make marijuana use uh, recreational legal. And that's a federal uh, law that says it, it shouldn't be. So it shouldn't be just for immigration. It should be for for any federal law that states are breaking,
1: we're not adhering to.
0: Um, well, you know, that, that's, I mean, thanks, see, that's an interesting situation as well, the whole marijuana question, because for all these states, and you make a great point, Chris, for all these states that, you know, have decided we're going to legalize small quantities of marijuana, doesn't change the fact that it is still against federal law to do that. Now, the Justice Department is still wrestling with exactly what its policy is going to be. Um, At least in that case, in the area of, of criminal cases, situations, you've always had, you know, state laws and you've had federal laws. And sometimes they overlap in the case of immigration. It's it is. The province of the federal government. I mean, California has nothing to do with illegal immigration. That is a federal matter. It is a federal crime. And I guess I say, how dare people like Moonbeam Jerry Brown, the governor of California, decide that they are going to think that, you know, we're going to tell the people of our state or our law enforcement officials that we're not going to cooperate with the federal government in enforcing the laws. Go after them. I I think they need to be landed on, figuratively speaking, with both feet. And I think this is a very, very positive thing that the attorney general is doing. All right. When we come back, does it matter where we vote? Stick around. 126 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 135 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Bob Eucher. Mr. Baseball, back on your radio. The Cactus League is underway, and you can check out the crew's entire spring training broadcast schedule in the Brewers section of WTMJ.com. You can also text the word Brewers to 414-799-1620. Opening day coming up March 29th. Uh, they open in San Diego, March 29th is, of course, the day after Insight 2018. Robust ticket sales so far. Check that out, WTMJ.com. $25 piece. We've got a great lineup. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hope to see you there. Then the Brewers open in San Diego the following day. And then that next Monday, Brewers open at home, and we will have our opening day extravaganza. Um, always a lot of fun, and I am looking forward to it once again. Brewers open at home against the St. Louis Cardinals. Very, very good game. All right. Think about where you vote. You know, maybe you, maybe you vote in like at city hall. You know, maybe you vote in a state county building. Maybe you vote in a school. It, it just it it varies. Trying to find enough polling places is always a challenge because first of all, it, generally speaking, has to be a public building. Secondly, it has to have access um, for people with disabilities, again, as as a general rule, because you want people to be able to go there and vote. So that's why municipalities use a number of Of resources like I say for years and years and years where I lived um, I I was right by you know City Hall so you voted at City Hall that was cool Um, I public libraries are occasionally used as voting places but I remember when I was growing up in Glendale place where my parents always voted it was my elementary school which is now gone and if you want to feel old It's when they not only tear down your elementary school, but now it's the site of a hotel, which is is kind of aging. That makes you feel old. But my parents used to go to my elementary school, and they would go in and vote. Lots of schools are used. It is a commonplace thing. Now, I bring this up because there are some school districts around who are concerned with allowing the schools to be open and used as voting places. For example, today's TMJ4 had a story. The Elmbrook School District is considering how to handle the use of polling places in schools going forward, since many parents have voiced concerns about safety. Now, of course, as a general rule, access to schools is limited during the school day that's the whole plan you know a lot of school district the doors are locked you got to go to the office you got to sign in all that type of stuff when you have election days what goes on is the schools are in fact you know, open. People can you know come in and depending on where the voting takes place, whether it's a school cafeteria or wherever, you have people that at least are walking around a part of the school. Um, Elmbrook says we have three schools: Burleigh, Dixon, and Swanson that um, are are used as voting. But we'd like to see if there are other options. On Election Day, officers are stationed at the schools. There have never been any issues. But the question is, um, polling places, um, are schools bad places to use for polling? All right, that is the AccuNet mortgage talk and text line. Obviously, we want schools to be safe. And obviously, as a general rule, you want to control the flow of people that come in and out of schools. Is that a justification for either not using schools as polling places or I guess the alternative being canceling school on the day of the election? So you don't need to worry about it. Now, keep in mind, that's not just going to be an election day in November. That's going to be probably the primary election day for the partisan primaries in August. It's going to be for, you know, the nonpartisan primaries in the spring. And uh, 414-799-1620, that is the AccuNet mortgage talk and text line. Feel free to disagree with me. But this strikes me again, and this is a concern that some people have, This strikes me as what I describe again as a solution looking for a problem. I think, first of all, to expose kids to the notion of voting is good. I I think there's something I think there's something positive, for example, with using a school as a polling place so the kids during the day of the election can see people coming in and casting their votes. Number one, I think that is positive. Number two, I I think, you know, on election days where you have polling officials, you've got people milling around. I think the idea that you're going to have the school shooter or the school sexual assaulter sneak in with the rest of the voters. I think that that's a bit far-fetched. Now, I guess theoretically, is it possible it could happen? Yes, but I think it's much more likely that that would happen on a a day when there's not a lot of people around and somebody sneaks in through a back door. On top of that, you know, in many cases, you have not only poll watchers, but you have, you know, police presence that's there. I don't see any reason at all to stop schools from being used as election places. On top of that, if you're not going to use schools, Well, then you're going to have a real problem in many communities figuring out where, what can you use to vote. 414-799-1620. That's the AccuNet mortgage talk and text line. Again, Elmbrook is apparently considering it. I think it's absurd. Kim in Wauwatosa. Kim, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
3: Yes, hi. Hi, Kim. Um, I live in Wauwatosa, and I've also helped with the voting polls. Over the number of years, and in recent years, I'd say the last year and a half to two, they've moved all of the voting out of the schools into various other locations. They have it at Hart Park. I helped this last time, and it was at the Greek Orthodox Community Center. The poll that I uh, vote at is at a neighborhood church um that they have their poster.
0: oh a church oh my goodness how can they get away with that because you know somebody's going to file the lawsuit saying they shouldn't have to walk past the cross or the statue of jesus to be able to vote
3: well this was actually down in the lower level you had a walk away which was uh, part of their community area i right. think and such so it wasn't that you were walking through the church or anything.
0: And I was actually also being a little bit facetious. Well, what do you think about that? It, it, does this make sense? I mean, is there is there really a valid reason to be concerned about school safety by opening up the schools on election days?
3: I think as of recent times and years that we've had situations and shootings in schools and other violent situations, that it's something that I think school communities should
0: consider. Well, I guess... No, go I mean, thank, Kim, I, I guess I, I just I'm sorry. I, I just I respectfully disagree with you. I don't I, I mean, look, I, I understand that you need school security. I, I get that. But the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, on Election Day, my guess is there's not a safer place. I my my argument would be I don't think the schools are ever going to be safer than they are on election day where you've got the volunteers you've got the people that are there you may or may not have a police presence to me the danger with the schools uh, again it's that off you know Tuesday afternoon where nobody's paying attention and the school shooter sneaks in through the the door that's the slightly ajar not not a time where you have you know, tens of people, maybe hundreds of people that are milling around that are all there. Now, I I do think it's reasonable to say, all right, we're not going to allow people to just wander around the halls of the school. And then, of course, you know, you just funnel them into wherever it is that you vote. But this idea that, oh, we, we can't let people in, I think is very, very unfortunate. And I want to say, I think it's nothing but paranoid. I believe that, again, exercising the right to vote is important, regardless of who you vote for. And this whole idea that I think it in I think, you know, kids get a great idea of their civic duty by watching people come in and vote. To me, that's where you use it as a teachable moment. And uh, again, does that mean that maybe you need to be extra vigilant? But this, for me, again, strikes me as people who are either being paranoid or who are looking to try to find, again, a solution for a problem that really doesn't exist, I don't think you're putting the kids at danger at all. Kids are in a lot more danger, I think, under many other sort of circumstances where they might be exposed to the public than they are on an election day. So I I hope this idea doesn't get traction. I guess if a local community decides that we have a significant concern about using schools And they're able to come up with alternative places. Well, okay, I mean, that's up to the local community to do. But as far as the state government coming in and saying, okay, we're going to mandate no schools, that to me just, again, it's not a necessary situation. All right, when we come back, baseball in Waukesha, would people support it? I'll tell you the story. Stick around. It's 144. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 149 Jeff Wagner WTMJ 29 degrees outside all right spring is coming then that means summer as well there are people in Waukesha pushing for it's what I'm going to call minor league baseball it's not it's not officially minor league baseball it's this northwest league which is like college kids in the summer who play it's the the Lakeshore Chinooks who play, you know, up in Ozaki County, for example, they're, they're in the Northwest, uh, they're, they're in the Northwoods League. And again, it's, it's, it's college baseball players who come in and they play during the summer. It's a lot of fun. You've got the Capco Stadium that's again in Ozaki County. I threw out the pitch, first pitch there a couple of years ago and, 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 and it's fun and it's entertaining and I am a baseball fan. There is, there's a company that is interested in trying to bring a Northwoods League baseball team to Waukesha, and and they've been working on this for quite a while. They call themselves Big Top Baseball. Originally, the plan was to have the city of Waukesha essentially – Take Frame Park in downtown Waukesha and and turn that into a 2,500 seat baseball stadium. A lot of people rose up in opposition to that. They had a lot of different objections to it, and and ultimately that that got shot down. So the new proposal is to take Mindiola Park, which is again in downtown Waukesha as well. It's close to Frame Park. It's it's a reconverted landfill is what it is. To take twelve million dollars to redo the site, to put in some soccer fields, and then to put in a baseball stadium that, again, would seat about 2,500. The plan is that um, Carroll University and Waukesha North and Waukesha South baseball teams could use this as well, but primarily it would be for this, this Northwoods League baseball team to play there again. It would be twelve million dollars or so, and they hope to finance this through a, a TIF district, um, an exist an existing TIF district. Um, so ultimately, the idea be you being you could you could get the revenue back. All right, and, and it's at the early stages, and people are thinking about it one way or the other. Here is what is interesting about this to me, and this is what I wanted to discuss with you. Um, it seems. More and more, you know, we're being told that minor league baseball is sort of the, the, the key. You know, if you put up minor league baseball, that's going to be a centerpiece and you're going to have economic development. That's the premise behind this whole ball, ballpark commons thing, you know, which is going on, you know, down on the, you know, in, in some of the, uh, you know, southern communities. The, the idea that, here, we're going to build this facility and we're going to be able to get a minor league baseball team and people are going to flock to this To me, the the first question you ask when you are trying to decide whether or not this is, is worth the investment is whether or not this is something that the community will embrace. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Because that's that's the whole key to it. I mean, if you're going to build a a baseball stadium, like I say, it's great that the high school could use it. It's great that the college could use it. But you're not going to make that kind of investment. And in this case, um, you're not going to invest $12 million in this space unless – you're pretty sure that this is going to be a success especially since at least it's my understanding that the company that owns the team would then go ahead and would, would own the the facility as well but the underlying question that the start off is you know is this something that is this a, does this fill a need is this something that people would want to attend 4147991620 that is the acute mortgage talk and text line now you know minor league baseball very success. And again, I, I'm using minor league. I understand that this is Northwoods League Baseball, which is different than the organized professional minor leagues. But I, I, I'm using this as sort of a generic term so that we can work with this. Um, there are some communities where it's, it's very, very popular. It does very well in Madison. It's a nice facility, you know, up, like I say, in um, Ozaki County. At the same time, you know, Waukesha, very, very close to Miller Park. So you've got big league baseball that's going on. You know, is is this something that would bring people in? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Dennis in Kenosha. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Hello.
2: Hi, Jeff, calling you from the home of the Kingfish.
0: Absolutely, the Kenosha Kingfish, yep.
5: Yes, uh, it's, it's a fun time. family. It's good family entertainment. It doesn't cost that much. However, it's not going to be a destination you know, spot where people are going to come in from outside communities uh, mm-hmm. to watch the baseball games. And I, now in Kenosha, we didn't use a TID or a TIF district. It was financed partially by taxpayers. But, I, you know, I'm opposed to all these TIF districts in general anyway. Mm-hmm. I think they're abused, and they are. Um, so, you know, I, I I guess I oppose it because right. if they're going to use Taxpayer dollars, I have a problem with it for a private entity that's going to be profitable or trying to be.
0: Well, I guess – see, I mean, I, I have less problem with TIF districts if it helps get the stuff done. I guess and, – and this is what I want to discuss here. My question is, is this the type of thing – that would be a a success. I mean, is this going to lead to additional sort of development? Is this going to be something that's going to be a driver? I understand that's the argument with the ballpark commons. You build this stadium, and you're going to have this entire athletic complex, and it's going to lead to retail and housing. You know, Would something like that play out in, in Waukesha? And even more fundamental, again, I have nothing against minor league baseball, Northwoods League baseball or whatever. I've gone to a handful of Chinooks games. It's a fun thing, but... It's generally, I, I go to it because, you know, somebody knows somebody that's playing or whatever. Is this going to drive things? Let's talk to Jeremy in Brookfield. Jeremy, hello. Hello. What do you think?
5: Um, I personally, I've lived in a workshop my whole life. I've been following this very closely when they were trying to develop Frame uh, Park. And um, I guess the biggest concern in all of this is the fact that the um, investment from the the city of Waukesha was um, supposed to be a tentative $4.5 million for the development of Frame Park. And then when they um, uh, re- reissued this deal and they um, released uh, specifics to the public, it was uh, an up to $12 million investment from the taxpayers, which myself as well as um, a lot of people in town here are just very concerned by that $12 million figure. And it's, you know, do we get that money back? Is that money going to come back into Waukesha? Uh, it's very, very questionable. I mean, minor league baseball, yes, it's got a a large following, you know, nationwide. However, is is it worth $12 million to the city walk show my biggest question. Well, right,
0: and I think that that's the underlying – right, because that, that's ultimately the underlying question is going to be there. Is this going to be the type of thing – again, I, I appreciate that there's other values. They're going to put in some soccer fields that the kids can play on, and, you know, you're going to have other high school teams that can use the facility. But is this going to be an economic driver? Thanks for the call. Matter of fact, we're going to continue this. Um, we, we've actually got uh, – the uh, president of, uh, from the Waukesha, Waukesha Common Council. Um, we're going to talk to him about this as well. So, I, but here's the underlying question 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. I'm not against TIF districts, but is, is a minor league baseball team, is that the thing that's worth building around in Waukesha? Stick around. It's 157. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. And I am Jeff Wagner. Insight ticket sales robust. Go to WTMJ.com. you see Insight 2018. Click on it. Join us. 25 bucks. And it's a lot of fun. It, it's actually it's an opportunity to see a lot of newsmakers in an intimate sort of setting. It's the Country Springs Hotel. It should be a lot of fun. All right. Um, the city of Franklin. Is about ready. we they're in the process of getting ready to drop about twenty-seven million dollars to create this this ballpark commons complex, which is essentially a, a minor league baseball field and built around an outdoor sports complex. Um, I, I I I hope I'm wrong because I look. I, I know almost everybody I know, certainly here at the station, thinks this is going to be a great idea. I think it's a huge white elephant. I I just I just do. I I think what they're doing is there's a a guy who's going to benefit financially from this. But the idea that you're going to have all this mixed use development and you're going to have restaurants and stores and offices, I just flat don't believe it. But maybe I'll be proved to be wrong. And actually, I I hope I I am wrong because, you know, if this helps Franklin, I, I think that's great. I just don't see it. I especially don't see the centerpiece of this being this minor league baseball stadium that's going to, you know, drive all this economic development. I think that's pie in the sky. Waukesha has been considering, uh, again, something similar. There's an enterprise, and it's different than the Ballpark Commons, but there's an enterprise called Big Top Baseball that owns teams in the Northwoods Baseball League, which, again, it's not professional baseball. It's basically college kids. The Lakeshore Chinooks play in the Northwoods League, and they wanted to build a stadium at Frame Park in downtown Waukesha, that met with lots of opposition. So now Plan B is Ola Park, which is uh, a sort of reclaimed landf- landfill. Um, it would be financed with about $12 million from a TIF district. I really don't have a position on this one way or the other at this point, except to me that the starting point is, you know, would minor league baseball be a draw in the city of Waukesha, especially given the proximity of, of Miller Park. Um, right now we're joined by Aaron Perry, who's the president of the Waukesha Common Council. Hello. Thank you, sir. Sure. Okay, What? Uh, tell me about this. Is, is this a good idea? What do you think?
5: Yes, I do think it's a good idea. I thought it was a good idea at Frame Park. Uh, in fact, though, I think it's a better idea at Mindiola Park. Uh, it's, uh, I think, in a very centralized area of the city. It's an area in which I've uh, coached soccer with my son um, last year. And there's a lot more space there. It's an open blank slate for us to make sure that all the needs of the community are met.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you th- Now, am I correct? Would you agree with me that the centerpiece of this and one of the keys to making it work economically would be the, the fact that this Northwood baseball league, Northwoods baseball league, would be a draw and, and would, would generate then all the other economic development.
5: Yeah, I think there's a couple different aspects to that. Uh, the Northwood league does a very good strategic uh, plan as far as making sure the teams aren't too close to each other. And Waukesha has been identified um, from a lot of different developers, but this, we'll just take this one in particular as being a very great market uh, for this draw. And when you look at cities of variable sizes, very large to very small, and we're certainly in between, uh, what you need as a city is an identity and something that is uh, family-friendly, that's affordable, and this certainly fits that. And one thing that I I do want to make clear that uh, we heard this in the comments in the Common Council last night is this is more than just baseball. Uh, The soccer aspect to this is certainly a big draw. Uh, from the tourism standpoint, the economic development standpoint, home value standpoint in the area. Thankfully, this is in an area where there aren't single-family homes, uh, you know, directly uh, very, very close to it, like we had in the Frame Park situation. And so there's a lot of things going for it.
0: Does the proximity... I, and I I understand that that minor league baseball is a draw. Madison is, of course, a, a classic example of where you get a lot of you know a lot of support. In Madison, does the fact that you're so close to Miller Park, does that give you any pause?
5: Not at all, uh, because I mean when, when we talk about the what the cost it would be to go to a Northwoods League baseball, which is um, and and I like I actually do like that people call it minor league baseball, even though it's not. the yeah. talent is very very good. But it is amateur baseball. So I'm right. looking at, you know, very, very high-end college players who oftentimes go into, uh, uh, the major leagues such as Eric Thames, who's been with the Brewers, Max Scherzer, who's won two Youngs in the major leagues. Um, they played in this league, which is the largest one of its kind in the, in the country. You know, taking a family of three or five, uh, to a game at Miller Park is a much different financial situation. Than it would be to go to a Northwoods League game, which is right in our city, mm-hmm. and I don't think one would draw away from the other. The Miller Park experience is still fantastic. The team's
0: oh, oh yeah. I guess I guess my question would be, yeah, I don't think I don't think the minor league base. And again, I'm using the phrase minor league. You're right, amateur. Um, I I don't think that would hurt Miller Park attendance. I guess the question is. Do you really, you really believe that there's enough demand for this that you would have people who would attend on a regular basis, as opposed to just saying, "Hey, we're going to go," we you know, we're going to save up our money and we're going to go to one game at Miller Park, as may, as opposed to maybe you know three or four games for the the minor league team.
5: That's a great question, and actually, I'll just give you the background of what the research I've done is looking at the attendance of the different teams because
2: mm-hmm.
5: they're they're in Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Minnesota, North Dakota. And the team in St. Cloud, Minnesota draws different than it does in lacrosse, and it draws different than it does in Kenosha and Green Bay. Right. And, of course, Madison is the tops in the entire league. Um, And so, you know, we're not going to get – obviously, we can't get 5,000 people because it's not even going to hold that. You know, but to get – 1,500 to 2,000 people on average would be, I would consider very, very su- successful. Especially
0: I would too. Do you think that's can... realistic? I mean, do you think it's on a, on a given night in the summer, do you think it's realistic to say you could draw 1,500 or 2,000 people? And I, again, I understand there might be some Saturday night, of course, where, you know, you know, you got some sort of promotion. But you think night in, night out, you could really draw 1,500 to 2,000 people in Waukesha?
5: Yes, I do, on average, yes. Mm-hmm. I think, of course, the weekend games, of course, are going to draw more because of the different things in uh, in Waukesha with Friday Night Live and our farmers market and other things going on. Uh, and and the our area along Sunset there, from uh, Fox Run all the way down to where we put the new Meyer store, it's a very it's a very ripe area right now for economic development. There's restaurants and businesses all along there that are doing well, but certainly are ready to be catapulted, and this is kind of one of those things that could be a game-changer.
0: Well, I guess that was going to be my next question. Let's say we, we go ahead – let's say you go ahead and, and do this. You, you create this. It's there. Do you think five years after the fact that there there is going to be corresponding economic development, um, that, that you, if you build this, people will come, or is this just going to be kind of like a standalone thing that will have to pay for itself?
5: I don't think it'll be a standalone thing that'll have to pay for itself at all. I'll be honest, and I've I've lived here since 2009. I plan on living here a lot long after now. Um, I think five years from now, were we to execute this properly, I think we're going to look back at this as maybe being one of the best economic decisions we did for the
0: city. Um, Where is this in the process? Um, Because it's still – there hasn't even been a formal proposal advanced yet. Am I correct with that?
5: That is correct, yeah. Okay.
0: So um, even assuming assuming that everybody that needed to get on board gets on board, what do you think, what is the time frame for something like this?
5: Well, we're in a very unique position because uh, last year there was a time where there was some competition in which the league had not uh, dealt with before. There is a competing group that would like to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Again, because the market around here is very, very... Uh, Uh, ripe for this type of development Um, so in this case we do have to move quick because they want us to uh, make a decision or they're going to move on so uh, we were very slow in the process before Uh, we had public information meetings everything went through all the proper processes we will continue to do the exact same thing it's going to go through our redevelopment authority parks and rec finance which are all open meetings which have public comment and of course the rubber always meets the road with the common council we will make the ultimate decision once the final proposal is vetted, um, the exact date I don't know. Uh, all I can say is uh, I'll, what our city administrator said last night is we are going to move quickly.
0: Good enough, Alderman uh, Aaron Perry, Common Council President. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. You betcha. I, I and I, I mean I want to have my I I don't have a firm opinion on this. I understand I'm supposed to be bang. Maybe you know it'd be easier if I'm banging my fist on the table. Like, oh, it's a great deal. It's a bad deal. I I, I don't know. I have. I have reservations about minor league baseball, amateur baseball, whatever you want to call it, being the, the engine that's going to drive major economic development, especially in in an area like, like Waukesha where you have the proximity to major league baseball, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there, are, I know there are communities where it draws, you know, very, very well, but my guess is the majority of them would be ones where, you know, you you don't have major league baseball right down the road. And I understand it's a different experience, um, but, you know, if you're, I, I will tell you just intuitively, I haven't seen any studies, intuitively, an average of, of 1,500 to 2,000 people every summer night that you have a game. That that sounds like an aggressive estimate to me. But may, maybe I'm wrong. And if folks in Waukesha decide this is the way to go and they want to invest this money, I again, I, I certainly hope it works out. It's just whenever I hear the, these things, and whether it's Ballpark Commons or whatever, I, I keep flashing back to this episode from from the Simpsons Monorail.
3: Monorail. Monorail. I hear those things are awfully loud. It flies as softly
4: as a cloud. Is there a chance the track could bend? Not on your life, my Hindu friend. What about us Brendan and slobs? You'll be given cushy jobs. Were you sent here by the devil? No good sir, I'm on the level. I swear it's Springfield's only choice. Throw up your hands and raise your voice.
5: Monterey! What's it called?
3: Monterey!
1: Once again! Monterey!
3: The cracked
1: and broken.
3: Sorry, Mom. The spoken. Marie! Marie!
0: Marie! Marie! It's two twenty. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Two twenty-three. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. Number of people were asking me if I was going to comment on the latest developments in the Stormy Daniels situation. And the answer is yes. All right, let us review the bidding. Stormy Daniels. I, I just love that name. That, that is That's this woman's porn star name. If you want to figure out, and I've said this before, what your porn star name would be, you take your childhood pet and you couple it with the street that you lived on as a kid. So, for example... My porn star name would be either Acacia Sunshine or Sunshine Acacia. That, that's that, that's typical. How you got Stormy Daniels? I don't know, but that that's all right. So she she is a porn star who says back in two thousand seven she had a a torrid affair with then real estate developer Donald Trump, now President Donald Trump, that lasted for several months, and it it occurred right when he was starting off his marriage to his, his current wife. Okay, so that that's that, that's it. Um, it is back in the news because Stormy Daniels apparently at some point in time cut a, a deal where she was paid hush money for, you know, want of a better phrase. She, w- she was paid money. Um, in order to not tell her story, the president denies that he ever had an affair with Stormy Daniels, who she says she met him at a, some golf tournament somewhere, and they, they had this various stuff that was going on. All right, so this has been kind of floating around. A guy who was Trump's lawyer paid the money. It's 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 been going on. This is this is a ten year old story. Stormy Daniels wants to, I, I think, make more money. Um, because the original deal was for like $130,000 and she wants to make more money, so she wants to tell her story. Um, and so she is suing to invalidate the agreement that she signed back whenever she signed the agreement. And her argument is it's not valid because even though I signed it and even though all the lawyers signed it, uh, Donald Trump did not sign it, so it's not valid, it's not signed by everybody, so I should be able to tell my story, and presumably meaning that she should be able to sell her story for more money than she was paid for the with the hush money. So, Mike, the question I'm being asked is, you know, are you going to comment on this, or, or whatever, and my, my answer is... Given all the the legitimate issues that are going on, and I understand there's the titillation factor, here you've got the porn star. I, I don't know what the president's relationship was with this person years ago. I I guess we all have Opinions and all have guesses. But, you know, given all the stuff that's really going on that we should be concerned about, which is like North Korea and trade wars and all the other stuff, you know, are we going to be able to figure out a way to keep violence out of the schools? All those different things. Candidly, on a scale of, you know, one to 10, with 10 being, I'm fascinated by the story, I can't get enough of it, and one being, Why are we talking about this? This, to me, would actually be about a minus 10. And before anybody says, well, you thought Clinton Lewinsky was a big deal, understand, you know, we're not talking about something that a president of the United States does while he's the president of the United States with an intern in the Oval Office. You know, did President Trump, when he was real estate developer Donald Trump, have a, and I'm putting it in air quotes, relationship with this porn star back in 2007? I don't know. Don't have any idea. Would it surprise me? Not necessarily. But again, he denies it. I don't know. I'm just saying at this point in time, given where we are and given all the real issues in 2018, I'm not going to lose too much sleep about this. Just saying. It's 2:27. When we come back, we got a lot of great stuff still left on the program. Madison fights crime. Well, I'll tell you how they're planning to do it. And then... I have been telling Steve Scafidi I was going to do this topic for the better part of a week. He keeps saying, you got to get to it. I want to hear it. Free the nipple. Stick around. 227, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Belinda Babinick wants to hear that, too. Um, Stick around. 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A lot of interest in our conversation about minor league baseball and whether... You should spend $12 million in TIF district money out in Waukesha to build a 2,500 seat baseball stadium. A couple of people are saying, well, the Lakeshore Chinooks, they, they draw pretty well, right? Why wouldn't it succeed in, in Waukesha? Well, the, I, look, I, I love the Lakeshore Chinook experience and it's the folks at Capco who are responsible for that stadium do a tremendous job. The Lakeshore Chinooks drew 1,300, on average, about 1,350 people last summer. And that's, that's, I mean, the alderman said, well, we're hoping to draw 1,500 to 2,000 on average. I don't know. It just seems to me that that would be adventurous, but I guess time will tell. All right. Several months ago, in the city of Milwaukee, there was it was a donut shop on Wisconsin Avenue. I think it was a Dunkin' Donut shop. And they were a 24-hour donut shop. And what happened was there were panhandlers, bums, and general troublemakers that would congregate outside the donut shop and would beg money from patrons who were going into the 24-hour donut shop. So the city of Milwaukee, and this is the way the city of Milwaukee handles so many things, instead... Instead of dealing with the bums, panhandlers, and general malcontents and troublemakers, the city of Milwaukee closed down the donut shop. Their idea was, well, okay, if we don't have this donut shop so people can go in and get coffee and donuts, well, you know, there won't be a place for, again, the the malcontents to, to gather. Now, of course, all that means is that the troublemakers, panhandlers, bums, malcontents, they just move, you know, somewhere else. But the city's response was, let's close down this business that is doing absolutely nothing wrong, so that they took away their ability to open to operate all night. I was thinking about that when I was looking at the story out of the People's Republic of Madison. Currently, um, they allow food carts to operate in various downtown locations. On weekend nights, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, there's several food carts and, and grew, you know, people know what a food cart is, right? You know, it's, you know, whether it's selling hot dogs or selling tacos or whatever. Okay. You've got these food carts and they are allowed to operate Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays in the evenings from nine o'clock at night to four o'clock in the morning in the business district downtown, right? Nobody says, that these food carts are in and of themselves nuisances. So it's not like, oh, you know, that this food cart is causing problems or that or this, that or the other thing, right? In the city of Madison, though, they have downtown, they have a problem with with crime. So in an effort to try to deal with crime in downtown Madison, yesterday the city council approved a plan which would end, end the ability of the food carts to operate. Now, they're going to phase this in by 2023, but with the exception of, of one area on the library mall where people they would allow food carts to stay, any other food cart operating at other locations in downtown Madison isn't going to be able to continue to do this. Their objection is, they say, well, here's the problem. The food carts themselves aren't a problem. But what happens is, after bar time, you have people who've had too much to drink. They go to get something to eat at the food carts, and there's other people there, and they get into fights. Um, And so, like, for example, they fully acknowledge that the food carts are not the root cause of the problem. But they say, because they're a place for people to go after bar time— they have to go. All four seven nine nine is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Is this an effective way to deal with crime? All right, the problem is you got people who come out after bar time and they're drunk and they go to get something to eat and they linger around the food carts and they end up getting in fights. So the people in Madison say, our problem is if we get rid of the food carts, that means that presumably the problem is going to go away. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text line. I guess I've got two takes on this. First of all, it seems to me that if the business, in this case the food cart, isn't doing anything wrong. It is grossly unfair to punish them because you've got drunks or panhandlers or people looking to get into fights who hang out at their establishment. That's number one. Number two, all right, the the people are going to go somewhere. All right, so right now they they linger at the food cart. Okay, so what's going to happen? you got the person that's drunk, comes out of the bar at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever bar closing time is out there. All right, so instead of going and getting something to eat, what are they going to do? Wander over to the park or something? This doesn't solve the problem. To me, if you're going to deal with this issue, just like I think the city of Milwaukee was wrong to close down the donut shop because they had problems. To me, the city of Madison, the way you deal with the problem is if you got people who are drunk and getting into fights, arrest the people that are drunk and getting into fights and haul them off and punish them. 414-799-1620, that's the AccuNet mortgage talk and text line. If this was a nuisance, I mean, if you had like a bar, for example, that was serving people underage underage people or a bar that was allowing people to bring weapons in or a bar that for whatever reason was contributing to problems and you had cops coming all the time all right i might have a different reaction close down the bar but i'm trying to picture here you got somebody who's you know running a respectable business they are being closed down simply because well, okay. Other people are creating problems. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Chris in Waukesha. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Ah, uh, hey. What do you think?
5: Ah, uh, well, I think yeah. I think anytime we're trying to move in a direction of protecting the rights of, you know, basically, pardon my wording, idiots. I just think it's not really a step in the right direction. I, I would say potentially if we could have more ways to, you know. If we could, if we could have more ways to get these people in trouble for being drunk and getting in fights, not changing the world around them <laughs> to accommodate for them.
0: Yeah, that that that's that's exactly what it is. Okay, what's what's the nature of the problem here? The problem is you've got people who are getting drunk and behaving. You know, in an anti-social sort of fashion. So the solution in Madison is, oh, let's take away the food carts that are feeding people. <laughs> okay, you know, yeah. it's, it, it, right. I mean, it, as opposed to dealing with the underlying problem, which is if you've got guys or gals that are drunk and getting into fights, arrest them. It's that simple.
2: Yeah.
5: Well, well and it almost sounds like there's there's enough money coming in from the alcohol or something that you know they're. <laughs> they're making moves based on that it's like essentially we're dealing with like people that are drunk right I mean, you
0: e- know. Ex- exactly no, thanks a call i mean see that's that's what the aggravating thing about again all this is you're taking legitimate businesses and what you're doing is you're you're going after and you're punishing the business without actually dealing with the underlying cause of the problem so okay now you get the the drunks that pour out onto the street um, I, I guess their idea is maybe they'll get in their cars or get on their bicycles or whatever and go home as opposed to hanging out the food cart. Well, uh, all right. My guess is more likely than not, what's going to happen is you're going to have those troublemakers who aren't going to be ready to go home anyways, who are just going to move to some other location. It's not necessarily going to be the food cart, but, you know, they'll be shooting dice in an alleyway or something like that or, you know, continuing to drink or whatever. The problem is you got to deal with the people who are The issue as opposed to punishing, you know, punishing the business. And I guess that's the fundamental here. Um, Jeff says getting rid of the food carts is unfair to the food cart operators, and it is a half measure. The drunks who can't handle their alcohol are going to linger there regardless. They should take notes from the heavy police presence I see on Water Street, which can be proactive in and of itself. Exactly. If this is the issue all right, and, and it's really creating enough of a problem that you feel you need to address it in this fashion, that, that that's great. Have a police presence in these areas where you think that there's a problem and when you have the people who stumble out of the bars and are creating the trouble, just arrest them. Arrest them. Don't go after the law-abiding businesses who are providing a service to people and who are paying taxes and are trying to make a living. Don't Punish the people who haven't done anything wrong. This is simplistic and it isn't going to work. 245 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 249, Jeff from WTMJ who's producing the show. I don't have time to do my free the nipple topic. We'll save that for tomorrow or Friday. And I also don't have time to talk about your alma mater Stephen's point. We'll we'll save that as well. I have a couple interesting texts on Madison. They better close all the Taco Bells then Jeff cuz drunk people tend to go there after bar time. Well, that's that that's a point. You get rid of the food carts, everybody's heading to the Taco Bells or the 24-hour diners or things things like that. My Millennial producer grew. Do you have one of those experiences with like at Stevens Point where those places that you would go? You're, you're right, you drive to the Taco Bell, right, or or the thing. I um I have one of those stories. Years and years ago, Big Boy, you remember Big Boys? Yeah. Okay. Right, right, the the big boy thing. It was one night gosh, I was in law school. I still vaguely remember this, and thankfully I was not driving. But I was overserved. There's no question about it. I was overserved. It was not my fault. I was overserved leaving Summerfest and then some other places that we stopped at. I was not driving. We had a designated driver, um, but I was overserved. It's not my fault. I take no responsibility. But somebody thought it was a good idea to, like at 1 o'clock in the morning, pull into this big boy restaurant that used to be on Port Washington Road. And we got stuff to go. All right? So. I'm unclear about some of this other than I remember waking up about 6 o'clock the the next morning. Um, I had apparently thought it was a good idea to take my big boy hamburger to bed with me, and I sort of fell asleep with the big boy in my hand and so yeah, it's true. I, I wake up and i I'm kind of like my ear has thousand island you know dressing it and stuff and it's like what's going on here and it's ever since then the big boy hamburgers have just never had that appeal but that's that's what happens when you're young and you're stupid and you're overserved and if you take away the food carts it's going to be just something else all right some good news um when the stock went y- yesterday afternoon uh, Gary Cohn, who was uh, one of the economic advisors to President Trump, and he was viewed as one of the voices of sanity in connection. And I understand some of you just, you know, think, Getting into a trade war is a great stuff, is a great thing. I mean, I'm more of a traditional Republican, um, and I'm a free trader. And, And I think the idea, and I've said this repeatedly, of throwing around, you know, starting to put big tariffs on is just going to be bad economic policy. It hasn't worked historically, and I think it's going to be particularly bad for Wisconsin. But Gary Cohn, who was one of the economic advisors of the president, and he was the guy who has been arguing all along against using tariffs, And it's not like he lost the argument. It's just that nobody was listening to him. Anyhow... He resigned, and he was viewed as sort of a mainstream rational voice. He resigned yesterday, and overnight, the, the futures for the stock market just took a huge plunge because people were afraid, okay, what does this mean? At one point in time today, the stock market was down over 300 points, and as it started off, a lot of people were worried that, oh, my God, this is going to be another one of these days where you see the six or 700-point drop. Um, the stock market has been down most of the the Dow at least, but now it's, it's it's still down, but it's down 92 points, which is down, but a lot better than being down three or 400 points. Interestingly, the tech-heavy NASDAQ is up 21 points. So uh, the stock market processed the news of economic advisor Gary Cohn saying he was going to resign and kind of factored that in, but uh, no huge plunge at least so far, we've still got seven minutes before the market closes. But that is that is probably a pretty good thing. I continue to side with Governor Walker and Senator Johnson and Congressman Ryan in hoping that the president isn't really serious about imposing across-the-board tariffs on places like Canada and the European Union. If you're worried that China is taking advantage of us, well, there's things that you can do and direct it at China without – trying to penalize the trade that we do with our allies and without hitting Wisconsin in particular as hard as I think a trade war would hit us. All right. It is 2.54. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure and Melissa Barkley and Greg Matzik have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around. It's 2.53. This is Jeff Wagner.